I'm Katie. And I'm Michael. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. That's exciting. I do miss the train outside your, like, room. <laughs> no, the, the heater. The absurdly loud The train was heater. my house. Yep. <laughs> 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 yeah. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah, I'm no, first I just... now. No, you were first. I think I'm no. first. Okay, great. I Your little closet, so Harry Potter. I'm happy with my new abode because it doesn't have any of the charms of my old abode. There is a window... I have my own bathroom that I'm not sharing with five other people. That's I have nice. a full-size bed. It's amazing. Were you on a twin before? I was on a twin. What does that do for your love life? Nothing good. <laughs> Nothing good. Yeah. I mean, There's... Bozeman, Montana does also not do great things for one's personal life in that hey, way. but Not in the wintertime, that's for sure. No, no one wants to do You got to find them in the summer and snatch them up. <laughs> Hold on for the winter. Duly noted. <laughs> I say that in my empty apartment. Um, where's Frankie? Frankie? She's sleeping on the couch. Okie dokie, Smokies. Your turn. Cool. Mr. Man. Mansplain um, it at me. So I want to like, I want to try something different this week. Twist. Um, twists. I like... In doing the research for this episode, watched a documentary that got me cinema, inspired me to like paint a picture. (laughs) So we're going to start by painting a picture (laughs) with the words that I'm so Mm -hmm. good at. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Paint that picture. Um, Okay. So we open on a cabin perched on a hill. It's night. We see a candle. Sorry. Keep going. (laughs) Candle. No. We see a candle flickering in the window as we hear the wind rustle through the grass outside this is like a radio play okay i'm with you i'm trying i'm channeling Mm -hmm. my inner you're doing great very creative um we cut to the inside of the cabin and see Mm -hmm. an older woman lying on the bed she's clearly ill oh no the doctor has been summoned but the family is worried he won't arrive in time a young girl a friend of the family sits by the bed and tries to comfort the woman did you write this i did get out of here okay keep going been hanging out with some playwrights okay Um, Throughout the night, the family sends more messages to the doctor. He promises he will be there soon. Just as we see the sky begin to brighten through the window, the woman's breathing grows labored. She passes away right as the sun peaks above the hill. The doctor never comes. Rude. The girl, looking at the body in the bed and then out the window, thinks, was only an Indian, and it did not matter. Uh, And that young girl, Susan LaFleche Picot. And she's going to be the woman I'm talking about this week. What's her name? Susan LaFleche Picot. Um, She's a member of the Omaha Nation. Uh, She's born in what will become Nebraska, but at this point is not yet Nebraska, in 1865. The Omaha checks out with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Um, Her father is Joseph. Sorry. Yet another reason to have Indigenous People's Day. We took all their names for things and called states and cities them like like they're thoroughly a part of this nation 
And we don't and even we don't realize celebrate it. Celebrate them. They also have really good creation myths and general spiritual concepts yeah. that I find very interesting. One of the coolest things in doing this was I was reading an article about her written um, by a Native American scholar, and it begins with the creation myth from the Omaha tribe oh. as sort of a way of like what is re. It? I bet it's great. Um, it involves um, people coming out of a lake and the relationship with them um, and trees. Um, the Omaha, um, I don't want to misrepresent it, but their, um, the religion is centered around, um, a sacred spirit pole, um, Mm. that prior to the 1860s was sort of the center of spiritual life and was sort of imbued with these, um, spiritual powers and played a role in the annual buffalo hunt and sort of the like spiritual renewal of the tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, so like very tied in with trees. Cool. Yeah. Sorry. To um, okay. Right. No, it's you? great. Um, so her dad is Joseph Iron Eye LaFleche, um, who's the chief of the tribe. Um, he's also the last chief, at least in the like traditional, like old school sense. Um, so that sort of tells you like where we're at in terms of the history, sort of a big point of transition. Mm. Um, and then her mom is named Mary Gale, and she is the daughter of an army doctor and an Omaha woman. Um, and her dad, in addition to being Omaha, also has some, like, French heritage, um, comes from a number of other different Native American tribes. So she comes into the world in the 1860s as part of, like, a mixed-race family with European ancestry, with Native American ancestry... And so lives at this really fascinating intersection between, like, European-American culture and indigenous culture. Mm-hmm. And her dad is trying to bal- play this, like, really delicate balancing act, both, like, with their family, but then with the tribe more broadly at that intersection of, like, trying to maintain Omaha identity and keep those traditions alive, but at the same time do enough assimilation into white American culture for the tribe to survive. Mm -hmm. And so it's this fascinating thing that plays out on like a sort of broader political level, but then also like really personally in their own family. So Susan doesn't get a tribal name, but her sister, her older sister does. None of the children in the family um, get the traditional tribal tattoos but they all grow up learning how to speak the Omaha language, oh, that's cool. learning the religious traditions. But at the same time, they get sent to a missionary school to learn English mm. and to sort of learn white culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a very deliberate strategy on the part of their dad. Is this is it bad that I worried when you said missionary school? And I was like, it's going to be terrible. Oh, no, no. It's, it's that kind of like... One should be a little bit worried about it. Okay, great. Um, it's so it's interesting. So it's right before the period where removing Native American children from their family and putting them in boarding schools becomes official government policy. Oh my God. Um, which, because we gotta the do US more go- upbeat stuff on sometime. Like it's we, just, <laughs> I get it that most of it is pretty bad, but like. I need to I need to do an upbeat one next time. Yeah, we do. I mean, so this this came as a suggestion from my friend Emma, who 
like noted that we had not done a lot of indigenous American women. And so um, Susan's been on my list for a really long time for some cool reasons that we'll see in a second. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's like the, the background is always like depressing because American history, if you actually look at it, is often a depressing racist hellscape. <sighs> you gotta promise... know where you're going to know where you came from, man. Exactly. And there'll be some really amazing bright spots. Actually, this I think this episode is probably the most inspired that I've felt in like a really long time. Like simultaneously like so deeply angered and troubled by like all of the history that I learned in doing the background research. And at the same time, like she is going to be such an incredibly inspiring figure in a lot of ways in spite of and in sort of opposition to all of these really horrible forces that I was just like blown away. Like I spent 40 minutes this morning watching a documentary about her because she's incredible. I love that. Um, But back to the depressing parts. Yeah. Okay. We got to start low and go high, right? Exactly. Um, So the 1860s is like not a great time to be a native American in the United States. Most of the 19th century is a really not great time to be a Native American in the United States. But the 1960, or the 1860s is a particularly rough spot because of, wait for it, the enactment of President Grant's peace policy. We should put oh, peace policy in buddy. really big air quotes. What does that mean? Um, so prior to the 1860s, the way the federal government sort of interacted with tribal governments within the boundaries of the United States was through what were called Indian agents. So the government would appoint a person who was basically their point person with a particular tribe. Hmm. Um, This system was pretty corrupt because it was not in the... The Indian agents never really were looking out for the tribes they were supposed to be working with and were generally just sort of pocketing as much money as they could and being exploitative and shitty. So President Grant's solution is he's like, well, missionaries are better people, so maybe they'll be less corrupt. And basically parcels out various reservations to various religious groups. So there are like some reservations are going to be run by the Catholics, some are going to be run by the Quakers, some are going to be run by the Episcopalians. No. Because that's an appropriate way to deal with people. Fundamentally, you know what they all are? Human, and people suck most of the time, so. Yep. Uh, So it turns out, unsurprisingly, that this plan doesn't work super great for the Native Americans. Um, In particular, it comes with this assumption that, like, the goal is to assimilate and westernize and Christianize the Native American communities, and a big part of that is breaking up the collective landholding traditions that they used to hold and getting them to farm individual plots of land. No. Uh, this is a pretty exploitative system to begin with, and on top of that, the Native American tribes don't have a history of private land ownership, and so all of a sudden you're like, well, you own this land, here, go for it, is sort of is a situation rife for abuse, and unsurprisingly a lot of abuse happens people come in and either steal their land or buy it at like absurdly low prices um it's just like an all in all not great situation for the omaha 
But more of that later. <laughs> uh, so Susan, uh, at age 14, um, after studying at the missionary boarding school and then later a uh, Quaker day school after the Quakers get responsibility for their reservation, um, is going to go study at a boarding school in Elizabeth, New Jersey, with one of her sisters. Um, and then from there is going to go to the Hampton Institute in Virginia um, to get her undergraduate degree. Um, so like already like getting way more formal education than most Native Americans have at the time, and especially Native American women. Um, but it's because her father really thinks that like this is an important thing, not just for her, but sort of for their tribe is to have people who are educated and culturally fluent in white American culture to help sort of serve as a bridge between the tribe and the like encro encroachment of white America on their lives. Um, so she goes to the Hampton Institute, which is this really interesting place that was founded after the Civil War to educate freed African Americans but by the 1870s also has a program specifically for educating Native Americans. Now, the programs for both of these groups are pretty in the, like, let us Christianize them, let us, in air quotes, civilize them. But it's this sort of kind, it's this, at the, for the time, amazing place where you have African-American students and Native American students studying side by side. Uh, the, the idea, or at least the pitch, given to the white benefactors is like, well, the black students are going to help civilize the Native American students and the Native American students are going to help uplift the black students. Uh, so what? relying what? on some pretty uh, racist assumptions there. What? Um, this idea that like... uplift thing? What does that mean? So there's this weird racialized idea that Native Americans in being less civilized are closer to the like ideal spiritual version of man so that they are like somehow morally better okay. even if they're like less intelligent and less civilized than okay. other people so like their yeah, morality like would rub off it's, right? it's 19th century <laughs> nagging like yeah i just love how spiritual you are and like fundamentally less than me you are exactly like a person. but you're like so in touch with the earth because you can't be bogged down with like intellectual thoughts you know so you're like closer to like, you know what we should be as people but like i'm better than it you in that way you know what i mean you know what i mean you know what i mean oh god Mhm. Mm so like just a, a pleasant reminder that like american racism comes in many forms warped <laughs> so it, warped um, but okay. my favorite, my favorite little bit about her college life is that at college, she develops a relationship with a man, um, who's a member of the Sioux Nation, who she refers to as T.I. She, in like all of her letters, <laughs> he's just like T.I. Uh, but my favorite part is that like, she breaks it off after graduation because she's going off to pursue her career and can't be tied down to a man. Yeah, girl. That's the time you do that. That makes sense. That exactly. Um, That's like on um, postgraduate bingo. <laughs> I can't right now. I just really need to focus on me. Exactly. <laughs> oh, good for her. Have some yeah. fun and then 
Exactly. Get out of there. <laughs> we'll um, be fine. And the the career that she's going off to focus on um, is medicine. She wants Ugh. to become a doctor. Sort of remembering back to that experience of eight year old her yeah. watching this white agency doctor not show up to take care of this woman. She wants to now, be better and be trained to sort of serve her community. Now, Michael. Yes. Last week you talked about the heinous experience of a person of color, let alone a woman, in the medical field in the mid-20th century. So where are we now in time? Uh, We're in the, like, 1870s. So it's 100 years of worse. Pretty much. Great. And she's a Native American, so... So I think we should be clear. This is going to be super easy. Just like with Gene Spurlock, like, this is going to yeah, be like so easy. Yeah, it's an easy. easy road, basically. Like, you're trumping your way all the way to the top, right? Yeah, and you I hadn't... You a day's work in. You <laughs> falsify pretty much everything about yourself that's great. Um, you throw money at it. I mean, I'm sure she just had a ton of assets to really pave her way in a smooth and... Easily achievable, you know. Yeah. Manner. Great. Yeah. Cool. Um, Just as long as and we're on brand. Exactly. We should and really have um, missing history bingo. <laughs> we really <laughs> should. It'd be a little ble- put politically incorrect. Of like, how positively can we swing this horrible thing? Um, married um, under the age of 16. Parents died. Orphan. Yeah. Definitely an orphan. Um Overcoming massive institutional racism at a time With, when that like, is incredibly subtlety, unlikely. Subtlety, calm demeanor, and like a very much a blinders of the bananas experience you're living right now, and just be like, I gotta just work really hard and like get get ahead. Yep. Fascinating. Okay. Anyway. So yeah. Tangent. Sorry. Uh, I'm having a lot of this red wine. Okay. <laughs> It's Let's amazing. Sorry. Keep going. Uh, so she wants to serve her community. She wants to serve her community. And for her. she wants to serve her community as a doctor. But like you mentioned, m- money is a bit of a problem. Like, mm-hmm. she doesn't just have, like, med school money flying around. Um, but what she does have is she's got some connections. Mm-hmm. So she has a family friend by the name of Alice Fletcher, who's a pretty famous ethnographer. Um, what? It's uh, the precursor to, like, anthropology, basically, mm. uh, but That's with, like, not, yeah, okay. a little bit more racism, basically, <laughs> uh, which I apologize mm. to ethnographers out there, but that's just This is a shout out to my friend Megan, who loves when I use the word eugenics. Yeah. yeah uh, so Alice is not, is not a eugenicist, but it's that world of, like, studying other races often with an eye to making white people look better um but alice has all these ties to the sort of like broader women's reform movement so like temperance women's rights sort of that whole mishmash of like progressive white women things um hey don't speak against my people (laughs) uh progressive white women in the late 1900s late 19th century is a is a slightly different thing. One of the organizations yeah. she's connected with is the Women's National Indian Association, mm. uh, which, to be clear, does not actually have any Indians in it. It's a group of white women who are who start out advocating that the U.S. needs to respect 
its treaty obligations with Native American tribes. Arguably, like, a thing that should have happened and wasn't. But they also are advocating for the Christianization and assimilation of Native Americans into white American culture. So it's a bit problematic. Uh, also a bingo thing. The, worst, the use of the word problematic. Yes. Uh, they agree to help fund some of her education. In return, she agrees to stay single through school and through the first couple of years after graduation so that she can focus on her career. And to sort of become a sort of missionary, like do missionary work for this organization when she goes back to her reservation. Um, and so it, that's sort of this interesting back and forth that she is constantly having to navigate is wanting to prove to white Americans that Native Americans are capable of doing the like really strenuous intellectual work of getting a medical degree. They're just in a basic line like they are people but also fundamental like radical concept right they are human beings and at the same time she's perfectly willing to sort of play into the rhetoric and in some case some of the stereotypes even uh, that white people have about native americans if it serves her purpose mm. so in sort in reading like some of the letters that she writes to gather support for getting the money for med school she sort of uses a lot of the language that you would expect white women to be using when talking about native americans because she knows her audience and she's really she's perfectly willing to deploy those rhetorical devices if it suits her aims yeah she's got a bigger picture plan going on exactly and she's sort of willing to do or say whatever she needs to to get her goals which like, in this oh, case yeah, is to be a doctor on my seat side okay great let's talk about mimosas sorry <laughs> <laughs> i mean so, it's basically the it's the sorry. 19th century version of brunch <laughs> of like brunch yeah. talk hey gal um, let's get a frittata and talk about our lives um also can you help this time period be not so tragically terrible exactly uh the other interesting thing she does is she writes to the commissioner for indian affairs to ask if the government will support her money. Um, again, sort of this problematic thing where the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is the government body sort of tasked with um, fulfilling the United States treaty obligations to Native American tribes, is willing to support her. So in this sense, she's the first person in the U.S. who's going to get federal financial aid for pursuing a professional degree. She's mm. like the first person who the government's going to be like, yeah, we'll pay for you to go to med school. Uh, the reason they pay for her to go to med school, though, is because they want to undercut the influence of medicine men in Native American culture. And they think if they can get a Native American doctor who's got like a Western medical degree, that that will help sort of undercut their influence. So like not just out of the goodness find, of their hearts. I find it so. What year are we in? We're like 18, late 1870s. Yeah, I find the 1890s. 19th century so fascinating about how they deal with European culture. Like, the whole concept of, like, French being the fashion center, the, like, cultural center, and then the, Europe, the um, English take that on. So, like, they hate the French, but they can't fully hate the French. They have to, like, pseudo-hate them, but also import all of their goods. And then that then takes another layer when it comes to America. And mm -hmm. it's like, oh, but if they're European, then it's fine. And it's like, you're, what? No, it's, no, it's not. No. They, they could be garbage or a con person or like 
full of moral ambiguity like anybody else. But we have this weird class thing that, like, percolates down and percolates down, and, like, it's the reason, you know. Yeah. Anyway, the whole Victorian era exists to begin with of, like, mm-hmm. bizarre classism and even, yeah. Yeah. But anyways. And speaking of the Victorian era, and I think Ugh. also checking another box. What a weird box, family, am I right? Uh, <laughs> Woo! They're a trip. Okay. Yeah. On our um, Missing History Bingo is weird things men thought about women's reproductive organs mm, uh, the floating so, womb is that where we're going is we're, it in my we head might be is going it in, my in nose? that direction hmm, funny <laughs> enough when i go to the surgery it's in the same place every time it's almost like it lives there but anyway what are you gonna tell me about i'm gonna tell you that there's tricks of the 19th century so Something there's a great? Harv- yeah Body it's super positive, positive. Great. Uh, Harvard doctor who writes in the 1880s that women cannot handle the Was stress it a dude? of college. Of course it's a dude. <laughs> of course it's a dude. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Women can't handle the stress of what? Of going to college because it's mm. too stressful and it would damage their ability to make babies. Maybe they can't go because they have to look at your stupid face every goddamn day. Maybe that's why <laughs> they don't want to go to college. Maybe yeah. that's what it is. Or maybe it's also because you won't let them into your colleges, Harvard. Uh, also, like, oh no, she can't have babies. Well, that's the only thing she's good Everyone's for. Everyone's fine, okay? We're all gonna be fine. There's plenty of women that can. God bless them. You're not a woman unless you have babies. Is that what you're saying? Is that yes, what you're saying? that's so actually then, exactly what you're saying. then fundamentally, the corresponding logic of that is that you're not a man unless you can make one. So what's it say about you, Dr. Billy Idiot? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> you tell him. I'm so mad. <laughs> I'm just so mad. It's just okay. not your value unless you want it to be. You know what I mean? It's both the most special thing that a woman can do and yet also the most generic thing a woman can do it's it's so specific you know it's just not fair (laughs) yep i'm sorry i'm just so mad i'm so ticked off michael (laughs) amazing we're and we've gotten mad at the patriarchy Uh, bingo it was the thesis of this whole project wasn't it it really was it's just not your value it's not i don't value you any less if you made a baby or not michael I really appreciate that, You're Katie. a beautiful person on your own. You don't need to make a baby to be particularly, you know, impactful on the world. So why is every woman like, oh, God, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm fine. I'm fine. Keep going. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to take over. I'm just so mad. <laughs> You're so fine. <laughs> All of that is to say uh... Uh, that it is not the easiest time to be a woman trying to be a doctor in America. Well, just like how many... Okay, this beautiful example that you're talking about. How much better could she have been if she were given the opportunity? Like, she oh. had to struggle so much that she maintained and, like, achieved so much. But, like, imagine if she had no barrier. What could she have achieved? So many things. <sighs> but we'll never know. Because of discrimination and patriarchy. Uh, so positive things. Exciting okay, things. Please, yeah, please. Uh, she graduates medical school from the uh, Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. She graduates in 1889, in the process becoming the first Native American woman to earn an MD. Uh, she graduates at the top of her class. 
And at her graduation, one of her faculty members says, quote, her courage, consistency, and ability has brought her this far in the fulfillment of a desire to see her people independent. So like already like being recognized by people around her for being really dedicated and for having a really clear connection between the political situation impacting her community and the like health implications of all of that. Uh, after she graduates, before she goes back to the reservation to work, the or, uh, women's organization that sponsored her sends her on a speaking tour to like raise money and awareness about Native Americans. She does more of this like saying the things the white people want to hear because again, she knows like that's how she's going to get the money that mm. she needs to do her stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, she goes back to the Omaha reservation in Nebraska and gets a job as the doctor for the Bureau of Indian Affairs school on the reservation. But really quickly, she's going to develop a really good relationship with the people in her community. She works really hard to earn their trust because some of them are sort of dubious of this woman who like went off and got like a Western medical degree. Uh, And basically by the time she's been there, like not even a couple of months, the official reservation doctor no one goes and sees him anymore because no one trusts him and they all want to see her boom so he does what any great white man would do in that situation and quits and leaves her now she gets appointed as the doctor the official doctor for the reservation that's actually way more passive than i thought it would be right like he doesn't burn things he doesn't shoot anyone he just quits he's just like well you don't want me fine I'm not going to do anything to improve. I'm just going to leave. Isn't it though? Isn't that weird? Can we do more studies on that? You're a man. (laughs) Michael, you're a man who grew up in America. Should I I speak for my whole gender at this point? Can you speak for your whole gender in this moment? But like, what's up with y'all's anger? Like where, where in, I'm I'm curious about the the spaces where that kind of, solution to problems is validated and encouraged and i get from the fact that you even talk to me as a friend and we do this podcast that you probably weren't privy to those spaces but at the same time where does that come from because like a lot of people like to flippantly say it's you know it's in the hormones or whatever it's like the natural impetus but at the same time i know plenty of people plenty of men defining or uh, what's the word um uh, what's the word i'm trying to you're not necessarily like i don't know you you'd self-define as male is what i'm mm-hmm. trying to say um that don't have the same kind of predisposition or or the salute that's the solution that they come up with for many reasons i don't know mm-hmm. speak for your gender and so, so speaking for my whole gender i think that the interesting thing is that a lot of it i think is young boys conditioning each other so mm. taking in a lot of the like signals that they get nothing like implicit but or nothing explicit but all of the like implicit stuff floating around in culture and the way they interpret it is this dual thing of you show that you are a man, that you are manly by being angry about things, by like your ability to get angry and to like be be a presence, be like a vocal force in the room mm. is one of the big yardsticks for measuring like how manly you are. And especially before 
sex starts becoming a thing. So like sort of for younger boys, like your ability to control other people to get your way to like express your anger is a huge thing. And that's, so, it's so much of like peers enforcing that among peers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's this other, then the other side of that is, but showing emotion is weakness. And so at the same time that you're being encouraged to like develop those kind of like (laughs) develop your ability to express anger you're also being encouraged to not develop your ability to express any of your other feelings yeah can we get real for a second do you feel like that is manifested in your life or has that oh yeah yeah like i i I see it and i feel like Mm -hmm. keep going sorry because i see like i see it in myself in two ways and one it's sort of like when i'm not when i'm being more passive it's sort of a guilt about like oh I like should be more assertive in this moment. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's like, oh no, I should actually be more assertive in this moment. But I think other times it's reacting against that conditioning of like, I need to be louder and I'm not doing that. And then there are a lot of moments where I sort of recognize myself being like, oh, I'm getting really angry right now. And my response to that, like the response that I'm suppressing, but the response I'm having is like, oh, I need to punch something. It's the, like, mm-hmm. put a hole in the wall impulse mm-hmm. that is, like, yeah. a very real thing. Yeah. And, it's, like, I don't put holes in walls. So I've, like, learned to sort of, like, de-escalate myself. But it's def- it's interesting to see that, like, even with that, that impulse is still really deeply there. Well, self-encouraged to de-escalate? Like, where, where do you think... I think that's the thing. It's, like, you clearly were given the tools or sought them out or were encouraged to then use more constructive tools to de-escalate yourself. Whereas I feel like a lot of people were not. And I'm wondering who failed them. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I mean, I think it um, really is a, it is a failure. Cause my, my dad did a lot of work with me when I was little in terms of like teaching and putting me in environments that like modeled that kind of like, yeah. how do you, how do you talk about your feelings? How do you de-escalate? Like, how do you yeah. sort of work through all of that in a way that doesn't involve physical violence towards other people? Yeah. Um, and that obviously has been like a process, but I think that like early on being like, no, it's okay to like have feelings and like, here are some tools for like expressing those that yeah. do not involve hitting people. Yeah. I think it's like, it's a really basic thing, but like is really fundamental. Yeah. And like, I know for a fact that I get angry enough to want to hit something but at the same time, that's never my first impulse of, like, how to get the feeling out. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? However, the older I get, the more I really want to take a kickboxing class. Because I think that mm-hmm. would feel really cathartic and fundamentally releasing. But at the yes. same time, that's all you're ever encouraged to do is to not act uh, physically with that anger. I don't know. Uh, we are segueing a really wide turn. But I was just fascinated in that moment of, like... You're clearly a progressive person and a very um, self-aware person and and try, feminist. Try. You're a very prone like feminist and like um, to get insight about those things that are fundamental to be. Well, it's just yeah. Is it a gendered thing? Like, do men just get angrier and they have to deal with it? Like, I'm sure there's a lot. I mean, you can't deny what hormones do. You know. It, but at the same time, do women get just as angry, but they've never been encouraged to explode their anger in a way that's deconstructive? Yeah. I, you know, I'm a big It's probably a little bit of everything. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm I'm more inclined to blame the like socialization end of it, just because mm-hmm. like I have I see that play out, but it's definitely sort of a whole host of things. Yeah, it's a hodgepodge that, that damage men and women, and yeah. and, and all sorts of people. It's just not fair. Men need to be able to cry. Women need to be able to. Well, I don't think anybody should hit anybody, but women need to be able to be angry mm-hmm. and not dismissive or dismissed, I should say. Yep, and everyone should be able to get angry without inflicting violence on other people. Yeah. Did we ever talk about women's pain with your other lady? Were we, we going to do that with this one? We touched on it. We didn't talk about it as much as I wanted to. All right, um, we're going to save it for the end of this then. Okay, great. We'll talk about it more. Okay, keep um, going. Okay, so we have left Susan as the only doctor on a reservation with over 1,200 people who are spread out over a couple of hundred square miles. Oh, jeez. And again, we should be clear, this is in Nebraska in, like, the 1890s. So I'm picking, like, a more culturally diverse Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman scenario, which is streaming on Amazon at any time. Go for it. It's fine. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's problematic in a lot of ways, but it's also charming. Okay, keep going. Okay. Uh, Well, the charming image of her is, um, so she would go out and make house calls in a horse-drawn buggy with her two horses, Pat and Pudge. Oh. Yeah. Oh, so many uh, pets need to be named Pudge. Right. That's adorable. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, but like driving through like snow, wrapped up in furs, making these house calls that are like 100 miles away from her office. Uh-huh. Um, and at the same time, like her office is just like crowded with people who aren't just looking for medical advice, but it also is sort of a community center. She by nature of her sort of straddling these two worlds is often interpreting for people is writing letters or helping them translate letters that they've gotten helping them figure out like how to deal with these land allotments that they're getting from the government so she is doctoring and also doing a lot of the like community work that is like really necessary (laughs) when she goes to bed she keeps a lantern burning in her window so people can come find her if they need help. Uh, and in one of her reports back to Washington, she's writing and she's like, my office hours are day and night. She's just always on call, always working. Um, and on top of that, she's also doing a lot of public health work because the late 1800s is sort of when public health begins to become a thing in the United States, and she is in many ways sort of on the leading edge of that. Um, so she's advocating for temperance and eventually for prohibition uh, because alcoholism is beginning to become a huge problem on the reservation at this point. Um, yeah. The like late 1800s is when rules about alcohol sales get relaxed. Um, she is going to persuade the Bureau of Indian Affairs to ban the sale of alcohol within reservation boundaries. Um, she also works to discourage the use of communal drinking cups, which helps spread contagious diseases. Um, and that's just generally sort of advocating for healthy lifestyles, being outside, exercising, getting fresh air, stuff like that. Um, in 1893, uh, she has to resign her post uh, to take care of her mom, who's gotten really sick. Uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs won't let her take a leave of absence to take care of her mom, so she has to resign. Uh, and then in 1894, she's going to marry Henry Picote. Uh, he's a member of the Sioux Nation, 
uh, they're gonna have two kids, but and here's the best thing, she keeps working after she has kids, um, which is for a Victorian woman, the fact that she is like a working professional is already way outside the norm. But the fact that she is a working professional woman who continues her career after she's married and then continues it after she has kids is astounding. It's just like unheard of at mm. the time. Because mm-hmm. um, I mean, when we, I think of all of the Victorian women we've talked about on the podcast, the ones who have careers generally have careers either before they have kids or mm-hmm. they don't have kids. Mm. But she has kids. Not and a Victorian trait, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, she, so she resigns from her official position as the reservation doctor in 1893, uh, but she's going to continue working. Uh, she opens a private practice where she's treating both Native American and white patients. Um she continues to do the service, sort of translating, helping people navigate the bureaucracy. Um, mm-hmm. She's going to advocate for the Omaha treaty rights, um, particularly around this issue of allocating land to individuals. Uh, because as we talked about earlier, like white speculators are coming in and using sort of illegal or shady methods to get the Omaha to basically give up or sell their land. Um, for much less than it's worth. She even goes to D.C. to advocate for this. Um, Unfortunately, doesn't make a lot of progress because the U.S. government at the time is still fundamentally racist. Um, There's a report written uh, by the Commissioner for Indian Affairs in, like, 1869 that lays out, (laughs) that basically says Indian tribes aren't really governments because they're not civilized enough. So, like, Whatever agreements we made with them don't really matter, and we can do whatever we want, which is a really convenient way of ignoring all of their legal and moral obligations, which is always great. Uh, In 1905, her husband, Henry, is going to pass away from pneumonia, uh, exacerbated by alcoholism, um, at which point temperance and abolition of alcohol becomes a really, really big personal issue for her um and so she's going to continue to campaign really hard for that um she's also raising money to build a hospital on the reservation um which is going to open in 1913 it is the first hospital that's built on tribal land without funding from the federal government so it is a pretty spectacular achievement It, it in addition to having sort of all of the, like, standard hospital things you'd expect from a, a early 20th century hospital. It's going to have a maternity, dedicated maternity ward. Uh, uh, so just, like, looking out for the ladies. Well, uh. it's just, like, everyone needs to care about maternity. Yes. I know yes, it's they fun do. to think that it's a woman's issue, but, like, at the same time, you should probably care how your mom was treated when she had you, don't you think? Uh, it's the reason I'm alive today. Hey, how about that? We all come through there, so maybe we should all give a crap. It's a, it's like a post, it's like a paying it forward situation. Do you know what I mean? Like, exactly. I'm not necessarily benefiting, but like clearly it'll help out. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm not a monster. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, though, um, the hospital's going to open in 1913, but at that point she is too ill to work there. Um, oh. 
she's been suffering from head and um, neck pain her whole life, has a number of surgeries in 1914, where they find out that she has what is probably bone cancer, um, which leaves her unable to work, and she passes away on September 18th, 1915, at the age of 50. Uh, so not a particularly long life, but an incredibly full one, where she manages to do so much more than I think most of us manage to do, ever. Um, and there's this really moving documentary about her life that was released uh, in 2017 that it's called Medicine Women, and it weaves the sort of tale of her life with a number of Native American women who are um, working in healthcare now, so doctors or hospital administrators who are talking about their stories and the similar challenges they face and the way that they're sort of seeing inspiration from her. Um, it's on PBS. It's like free. It's really, it really so moving. Much. It matters so much. Yeah. Um, and so even though her hospital closed, it closed in like 1940s, um, there's a, it's on the National Register of Historic Places and there's a big effort going on right now to restore it and to turn it into like a museum slash like community center um, and sort of keep it as a sort of symbol of all of the work that she was able to do. I do too. I, I really I, liked the story set up at the beginning. Thank you. I was very dramatic, but good. But also like a through line of her life. Yeah. And I, I, like, I really all can't All the more reason, like, like your lady last week, all the more reason to care about kids. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, her life choice was made when she was a child. Like we should care about how we treat children in order to like make them benefit as the adults they will one day be. Ugh. A lot to think about. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we covered a lot of ground. We really did. So I far. hope it wasn't too personal for you. I wanted you to speak for your gender. I hope that was okay. Sorry about it. But it is fascinating to me. As like someone who is not scared of those conversations and is able to think critically about the um, issues that you've been given as a white dude. You know, you're not scared of that label, but also you're not, like, weirdly defending it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Where you're like, I'm a white dude. It's problematic. Like, <laughs> hashtag Michael Denae's <laughs> go-to statement. It's, that would it's be my biography title. Problematic. And trying not to let it, you know, depress me, but, like, to move forward, to grow, and to, like, learn about other people. Yeah, I mean, I think that was radical the thing. Empathy. Radical empathy is really, I think, what this episode drove home for me is that mm. there's one version where you like read about the sort of like horrendous history yeah. that the United States has with just about everyone, and you're like, oh, this yeah. is really depressing, yeah, and that's where you stop. Or it's, oh, this is really depressing, and that means that I need to work all the more harder for justice in my current yeah. moment or like it's one thing for me to sit here and be outraged on behalf of people but it's like it's also like a very um weightless thing to just yeah like have my anger and then not do anything about it or to just like feel that feeling for somebody of like oh your struggle is so much harder than me. but then to not actually like put up what you you know uh what's the word i'm trying to say like uh be active in the choice 
rather than yeah. passive and be like, oh, that sucks, and I'm aware, so I know what's going on. You know, anyway. We talked about a lot of things. Say her we name one more time. Did. Susan LaFleche Picote. Susan. Yeah. I love it. Thank, thank you, Michael. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Okay, great. She's got three names, so she know, you know she's important. Whoa. Okay. Okay. We'll work on talking. Elizabeth Jennings Graham. Graham, if you want to say all the words. Um, she's born in either 1826 or 1830. Sources defer on the year because there's no record because she's an African-American lady in the 19th century. And what do we value at that time? A certain demographic. So, um, the world is garbage. Her parents were, uh, middle-class, uh, African-American people. They were in New York at the time. They are active in their community. And some say her father was involved with abolitionists at the time. Uh, they're clearly pre-abolition of slavery, so it is a cause of the moment. And she grew up involved with her church, where she played the organ. Um, at this time, New York has streetcars, and uh, as with all public transport and racial issues, it's problematic, to say the least. So on mm. New York streetcars at this time, Amer- African Americans could ride on a public streetcar, for a fee or whatever, as long as, this is so stupid, as long as white passengers were like, yeah, it's okay with me. I'm not a horrible racist. Wait, so, what? So I the... don't know how that worked. Like, did the, did the driver, like, take a toll, like, a tally? Or like, oh, no, Mr. Buttersworth just came on, and he's a, he's a horrible racist, so we have to, like, let him kick everybody out. I don't know how it worked, but it, it seemed problematic and not super regulated. Um, but it definitely seemed to put African Americans at odds with their fellow passengers. Um, that's great. Love that. The quote I have is, should any white passenger complain, an African American rider would have to leave the vehicle, which is like super fun for the drivers to have to deal with too. Like to have to just engage with their passengers all the time rather than just like, can we all just get on here and like get to where we're going and live our lives? But anyway, um, 1854, she is with her friend Sarah, and they're like, okay, we're going to get on the streetcar. We got to get to church. I'm Elizabeth. I need to play my organ because I'm an amazing organist, and I'm ready to just hop on my little trolley and get to get to praising the Lord. So she and Sarah are like, okay, here's a streetcar. The conductor, who shall remain unnamed because he's garbage, um, he <laughs> arrives, and he's like, you need to wait for the next one uh, because it needs to have your people in it. And she's like, I have no people. Let me on this one. So she's clearly like DGAF. Um, So he then says, well, you may go in, but remember if the passengers raise any objections, you shall go out. And she's like, okay, I'm a respect. She says, quote, I'm a respectable person born and raised in New York. which is the most new yorker thing to say she's like so new york and then at the same time she's also like trying to go to church but like doesn't care i just i love her so much um she's like i'm from new york i know how to ride these streetcars if you like i'm paraphrasing if she's like if you could let me on that'd be great um uh, she also (laughs) says quote 
that he was a good, she told the conductor that he was a good for nothing, impudent fellow for insulting decent persons while on their way to church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she's like, I don't got time for this. I'm literally trying to go praise my Lord and Savior. And you're like getting on to me about riding this streetcar that's pretty much empty. Can we all just get over ourselves and let me go to church with my friend Sarah? Also, I have a feeling that her friend Sarah this whole time is like, can you please just like calm down? <laughs> just like, I just want to go to church with my mom too. We anyway. all have that friend Sarah. So per usual, when someone is like maybe um, speaks truth to power in the way that she did, uh, I, the quote I have is, this riled the conductor, um, oh, no. which I think is a fair word, but maybe um, also inaccurate because he tries to throw her off the trolley. And she's like screams and like grabs onto the the um, grabs on the conductor, grabs onto like the window dressing, and is like screaming like radically, like get your hands up! Like basically, is like I don't care that I'm going to church. This is unacceptable, and you bet I'll make a scene because this is a stupid thing you're asking me to do. Um, she later writes of her experience, and it says. The conductor seized hold of me by the arms and pulled and dragged me flat down on the bottom of the platform so that my feet hung one way and my head the other, nearly on the ground. I screamed murder with all my voice, and my companion screamed out, You'll kill her! Don't kill her! The driver then let go of me and went to his horses. I went again in the car, and the conductor said, You shall sweat for this. Then he told the driver to drive as fast as he could and not take another passenger in the car to drive until he saw an officer or a station house. So the conductor is, like, over her. He doesn't want to deal with her anymore. She's screaming like a bat out of hell, I'm sure. And is like, I'm just... I feel like (laughs) she was, like, trying to go to church. She was trying to do her thing. And, like, it was the last straw. She's genuinely doing a, a, a moral good. And this... Jim Bob or whoever decided to be like, I'm going to throw my authority around. She's like, not today, man. I'm not happy. Not today. today. Not today. And then he decided to put his hands on her and she's like, oh yeah? You think I'm going to go quiet? I'm going to scream like an idiot and let everybody know you're putting your hands on me. And oh my god, I just love her so much. So the conductor is like freaking out because he has a woman with a mind of her own who wants to scream and yell and is just as, you know, loud and obnoxious as he is and he doesn't know what to do with it so he like starts driving they don't take anybody else on i don't even know how full the car is at this point um so he sees a cop i'm sorry he sees a police officer and he's like oh bro help me out and um he he stops he has the cop go on he's like she won't let you know white people sit and she was giving you know i'm sure he said some nonsense and so the cop i'm sorry police officer I really need to stop doing that. The police officer um, tries to push her out of the streetcar. The quote I have is, he uh, pushed Jennings out of the streetcar, dirtying her clothes, and she stated, tauntingly told me to get redress if I could. Now, redress means, like, justice. So this police officer then... pushes this woman off the streetcar trying to go to church after this conductor like can't handle his own issues and then he's like okay now see what you can do about it black lady or whatever he decides to do i may be putting a little pepper on that but you know what? i don't <laughs> care um 
she refuses. Uh, yeah, she's like, she's mad. She's mad as hell is a, is a nice way to put it. Um, two white men pushed her off the streetcar and into the street. Her clothes are ruined. She was sore. She was injured. She was, as this quote says, ferocious. So, Where are all um, these quotes coming from? This is excellent. She, well, that's the great part. Is like after the part after this whole incident happened, she's like, mm, you know what I can do? I can write up a little story about how this goes. And, you know, I was a respectable woman. I was doing my due diligence and trying to go praise my Lord at church on Sunday. I also play the organ at my church. So, like, you can't fault me, bro. And also, let's talk about the fact that there's no law that prohibits black people from being on a streetcar. So, what law do you have? It's just, like, a general cultural thing. Like, there's no law that actually prohibits me. So, how about you go... Okay, you can cut this out later, Jen, but you can go f*** yourself. Um, so, she's outraged and as we can clearly see she like takes it upon herself to be a badass so she um gets her dad to help her out she writes a letter of her experience in vivid detail sends it to frederick Douglass and horace greeley who publish it in their various papers and she describes the conductor and how he tries to remove her how he sought help from the police officer how they both taunted her with how she could you know, how they, like, pejoratively, like, taunted her about trying to get, you know, wh- who's going to listen to you? And she's like, I bet you someone will listen to me, because I know how to read. Um, and all my friends do, too. So she uh, gets that her story published in all these papers. Um, her church community rise to the occasion and hold a rally the next day to protest the violence done to her and say she's an exemplary member of the community and didn't deserve the treatment she was dealt her letter um detailing the incident is read in church the next day and all of a sudden the new york daily tribune is publishing it abolitionist papers are publishing it as i said frederick frederick douglas is like a friend who publishes it uh, her fire. Her father is pretty well-to-do, and he hires an attorney to represent her as they go to file a lawsuit against New York City and New York State. Um, or, I'm sorry, no, they, they, they sue the Third Avenue Railway Company on his daughter's behalf, and they employ yes, a certain uh, attorney of the time who would later go on to be a president of the United States, Chester A. Arthur, to represent her. Um... <laughs> As the, at the time, New York City and New York State had no laws regarding segregation on streetcars. So they had no leg to stand on. And therefore, due to her, like, ferocious, you know, attack of the issue and her, like, sense of good of what was right and what was wrong, this guy had no reason to be rude to her. She was trying to go to church. He was like, okay, well, I'm just going to assert myself in this moment and tell you, like, your place. And she's like, Thanks, bro. I'm just trying to go play the organ. So if you could screw yourself, that'd be great. I'm sorry. (laughs) She didn't say that. She was probably better than me. (laughs) Anyway, Chester A. Arthur does a great job. And um, the court rules that it had been illegal to forcibly evict her from the streetcar solely on the basis of her being African-American. They award her in... Uh, damages at, to the amount of $225. I 
didn't do the conversion, if you wanted to Google that really quick when I finish this up, that would be helpful, but you don't have to. Um, and while her case doesn't necessarily, like, boom, change desegregation of public transport in New York at the time, it sets a precedent. And that's the biggest thing with laws like this, where the biggest thing is the first one. You know what I mean? So that future future judgments can reflect on that precedent and be like, yeah, that was screwed up. Let's move on. Um, the Eventually, the New York Supreme Court rules that African Americans cannot be excluded from transit provided, this is the great quote of the 19th century, which is full of nonsense, um, the law states that they must be sober, well-behaved, and free from disease, which is fine if you actually had that same law for white people, which I don't think they did. So, anyway, baby steps, guys. Um, she, this was by far, like, her fame-getting moment. She had a, a full career afterwards. She, she was also a teacher, and in 1895, she established a kindergarten in her home for African-American children. And she ran the school until she passed away in 1901. Wow. So um, she reminds me a lot of uh, Joe from Little Women, which I don't know if you're a fan of Little Women, Michael. I'm not familiar. really get into it because they're great. But she's very much like, she's very much Joe March from Little Women, she, who was also a teacher, also like a headstrong defiant woman of the 19th century that would speak truth to power and not care how it affected her reputation because she knew Mm -hmm. it was right and good and um definitely like the court case was the biggest like news getting thing of the time but it it was also like i don't know i just appreciate a woman that's like yeah no i'm not gonna do that why because it's stupid it's like that lady that um there was the rally, and she climbed the flagpole and like took the Confederate flag down. Do you mm-hmm. remember those? Like, do you remember that was a couple years ago? How yep. we were all fighting if the Confederate flag was racist or not, and she was like, "Let me tell you what it is. It is so, racist. It's uh, super racist. Not up for a debate. Let me go pull this flag down myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not states' rights. It's nonsense. Uh, or um, the a lot of the like." Uh, descriptors of the articles written about this woman where um or elizabeth graham was um she preceded rosa parks by nearly a century so Mm -hmm. while she didn't like effectively completely eradicate you know racist ideas she did her little part in her moment to like speak to the idiocy of what her circumstances were and was like yeah and i'm just not gonna no i don't care i'm gonna scream and i'm gonna be mad and i'm gonna be vitriolic or whatever you want to say and you're wrong and i don't care and may it hurt my body i'm in the right and i know it and she just let it rip and then she like st- she and then she was done. She's like, "Cool, I'm going to go have a kindergarten. You guys are wrong. I was right. I'm not going to gloat. Bye. I'm going to go raise children to be better than you." That's and, amazing. Like, all good just like kindergarten teachers, the unsung heroes of most of America. Yep, that is so true. Yeah. Elizabeth uh, Jennings Graham. Isn't that a wow. good little like quick one? Like, yeah. Like, years before Rosa Parks. That's amazing. And like uplifting, like a nice, yeah, a good note to end it on, I think, for the yeah. week. Yeah, I just appreciate how she got to, and she also like was in control of her own narrative. Yeah. That's 
you know, so rare. The fact that she got to, like, literally write her own story and then it was published, like, the next day without a lot of... Yeah, that's amazing. ...editor influence. So. Very cool. You go, Elizabeth. You're great. Yeah. I appreciated all the anecdotes about how... I could just picture her just, like, the second that conductor put his hands on her, just screaming. Just to annoy him, really. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? You're not even, like, hurt. You're just like, oh, no, this isn't going quietly for you. This is not going to go the way you want it to at, at all. all. <laughs> I'm just going to, you're not going to have an option. No, we are right not going to play that game. No, I don't care if I look a fool. You're going down with me, man. Yeah, I, I like her so much. Make a yeah. scene, my friends. Make a scene. Yeah. A way to She's do great. it. And someone I had never, yeah. Yeah, no, I had never heard of her. Yeah, she's great. That's amazing. Thank you, Katie. You're welcome. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk about more? What, in your research of all these doctor women. Yes. Did you read stories about how women's pain is not validated in medical fields? A bit. I mean, I'm I'm familiar with that that research i was more interested just in the context of like how people of color's pain is not validated also uh, true. for similar i mean similar reasons similar biases in the medical professional i.e mm. white men um mm. but that um people of color pre- are generally prescribed like lower doses of pain medication um and their comments of like discomfort and pain tend to be discounted more when they're seeking mm-hmm. medical help mm-hmm Mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's a sort of similar thing for women. Well, there's just also like a, not a lot of research. So if you think of most medical studies right now, the things that they cite are from a certain um, era where, uh, unfortunately, the 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 typical or the um, the control person for a medical study is a white man, six foot tall weighs this much yeah so if you think about studies reflecting um all people like if that's the standard then when you are not that you are automatically not the standard and therefore like they don't know how to deal so if you think about like uh, medical studies a like we talked about before like no one will do studies on pregnant women because to their credit there is a fear of failure with pregnant women so like right. you don't want to be the study that like puts pregnant women at risk Fair point. yeah that probably wouldn't Fair be great point. so then it's really hard to get studies on women in pregnancy mm-hmm. which we all need as a culture because but again at the same time the risk is so high so i get that one but at the same time when all the studies you have are skewed to f- face a white male population then all of a sudden the, the issues that affect w- african-american women in their 50s or african-american men in their 50s or native american people or asian americans like that all of a sudden all these demographics that might have like slightly skewed data is then all of a sudden seen as other and bizarre and you know needs its own anyway yeah so all of that sort of study needs to then be modified let alone like you need new research to then subscribe to the female side of things because if there's one thing that we all know it's that male and women i'm sorry 
male sex bodies versus female sex body. I don't know how to say this. Like, ge- not gender-based, but, like, genuinely, like, body-based. Like, anatomy is different. Anatomy. Anatomy is what I mean. Not not who you are as a person, but, like, your anatomy um, specifies different results on all of these things. And so if white men... I'm sorry. If what men is the, n- the neutral or the control, then yeah. everything... Everything female is is odd and different, and like they don't spend time on learning, and it's weird, and you know, I mean, it's a fundamental thing of like pregnancy, pregnant uh, um, maternity leave is seen as a disability in like government jargon. Now, do we all think that that is accurate to what pregnancy is? Is that the same as you know Americans that? Uh, identify as disabled is that is that what we're saying pregnancy is disability is that or should there be a whole new demographic for pregnancy but then that makes it seem special which is skewed it's all cluster it's a cluster is what i'm trying to say um i think that is so accurate segueing into women's health and pain so the whole other aspect of it, of like um, culture and and schisms like that, and the fact that medicine has been a male field for so long, is that all these preconceived notions of like, what do you mean by pain? Uh, are you sure that's what's wrong with you? Second guessing? Oh, are you just being dramatic or overly emotional? Or what is our understanding of female centric? medical issues like postpartum depression or or mental health problems it's all kind of very very in need of a lot of research because mm-hmm. there are countless stories of women going into doctors and telling problems and then being prescribed incorrectly or um yeah not taken seriously is the way i want to say it but there's a different kind of more justified version of that of like yeah women's pain is not seen as real or not as bad as they say you know yeah you're you always must be exaggerating or like being dramatic or something like that it's emotional it's a mental thing rather than like Mm -hmm. i genuinely have pain here it's like well you're just being emotional the the weird sud text of like you're weaker than me so maybe you feel pain differently but it's like manipulated in a way to make sense yeah um i've got this book sitting on my bedside table right now that i've not gotten to dig into but it is called inferior how science got women wrong and the new research that is rewriting the story i mean they thought our wombs like ran around our bodies for so long yeah (laughs) my personal favorite recently michael they thought our brains were taken over by our wombs Mm -hmm. and that riding on trains would make you infertile well everything in women's medicine has to do with how it affects your fertility well of course that's the only doesn't matter if you get glaucoma but will you be able to have babies exactly we really only care about like two feet of your anatomy right and really just this little section it's only like post puberty through like childbearing years after that we don't yeah we don't oh god you're 45 what do we do with you no idea sorry it's bananas there's a really good Gloria Steinem quote of like men as they age become more conservative 
and women as they age become more radicalized and liberal and mm-hmm. the reason of that is the like the 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 gen the generational thing of like as men age they consolidate power and become more powerful and they can remain powerful as they age whereas women as they age just lose more and more power and lose more um agency Mm -hmm. so therefore they become more disgruntled with it interesting and thus act out which i kind of like the idea of a bunch of 80 year old women be like well not anymore we're gonna burn it all down i'm over it (laughs) i love that image a la elizabeth jennings graham great way to tie it all together yeah burn it down my friends i mean don't let's not harm each other let's all just find out what we have in common but your rage is justified. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a great message to leave it with. But be constructive about it. Don't be destructive about it. Don't be like men. <laughs> it's better when you say it. Speaking for my whole gender again. Yeah, speak for your whole gender. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. All cool. right. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, Katie. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.